Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Ready to be pod-pilled? G- gonna take the podcast pill? Uh, well, it is It is too late. You already have. You are listening to this podcast right now. Uh, this podcast is It Could Happen Here, the daily show. Welcome. Um, I'm Garrison, and today we have an interview with the author of the book, The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace Wells. Uh, David is a journalist who covers climate, among other topics, um, and his book was very useful for, put, for putting together the first five episodes of the scripted daily show. Um, it, it does a really good job laying out the different physical effects that climate change will have on environments and ecosystems, and the differences between like 1.5 degrees Celsius, 2 degrees Celsius, and you know, the potentiality of like 3 or three degrees or even 4 degrees. Um, the book is, is you know, is, is, is pretty scary uh, to, to read, but David, in person, on in, in the interview, was actually a lot more optimistic um, about, you know, different ways we can prevent some of the worst effects. You know, the, the, the book came out in 2019. There's been new reports and new stuff that's come out since then about the different ways that can be mitigated and adapted to. And, you know, talking to David on the interview was, was you know, not quite what I, what I expected based on, based on the book. It was, it was a very, very interesting talk. Uh, but I don't need to tell you that because you can listen to it right now. 
the interview was a bit longer than usual, so we split it up into two episodes. Part one is you're is you're listening to it right now, and part two will come out tomorrow. So that's enough of me talking. Let's get to the actual interview. So the first thing I'm curious about, David, is kind of since publication of your book, um, some some real world weather events have happened that uh, I mean, like I, I think that kind of the mainstream coverage I've seen is like this is all happening much faster than than we had anticipated, and like uh, 1.5 C is going to be a lot worse than you know had previously been anticipated, which is stuff that that you wrote about. Um, I'm kind of wondering, has personally what what's happened in the last you know, year and change, has has that impacted at all how you feel about what you, you've written? Has it changed in any way, kind of your opinion about the pace things are occurring at? Well, I think there's sort of a few different stories unfolding at the same time, and they're sometimes not all running in the same direction. So the ultimate lesson is a little bit unclear. Um, on the science of impacts, you know, I've been personally struck by how there hasn't been like a week since my book came out in early 2019 that there wasn't some kind of natural disaster or extreme weather event that got yeah. climate change back in the news. That's not to say that it has always been, you know, occupying the place on the front page of the newspapers that it should, or that it has even done that very often. But nevertheless, it was, um, I felt like I was issuing a kind of a prophecy. And then almost as soon as the book came out, like the real world was illustrating that and making people feel the same way that I did about what was um, coming our way. That's been, you know, really alarming. <laughs> um, I did think that I was writing a book largely about climate impacts, um, you know, 2030, 2050, um, not climate impacts that were going to terrify us in the year 2021. And the ones that we've seen this year, the, the heat dome in particular, was, yeah. you know, as, as has been written about quite extensively, um, like literally off the charts of what most climate models predicted. And that's really scary. Um, these are models that, you know, they're not simple. They're supposed to include essentially any uh -oh. possible outcome. Um, you know, they have like their fifth percentile outcomes and their 95th percentile outcomes. It's really not supposed to happen that something comes along that, that breaks that and that's really scary. I mean, it means that a lot of other climate impacts are likely to, you know, probably be worse than we were expecting right now. It means possibly that the global temperature models that we have for projecting where we'll end up given a certain amount of emissions are also clouded with even more uncertainty than we thought. Um, and that's really scary. I mean, it's scary for me, maybe particularly, but I think this is true of a lot of people, you know, the bleak formulations of climate science were obviously bleak, but you could also tell yourself, like, if you process them, you were also in a way preparing for them. And to know that we now have to treat even those quite alarming high-end estimates as incomplete pictures of what is possible and maybe insufficient um, as a projection of the, of the world we will be living in relatively soon is, is quite bad because th those, those, um, those projections were pretty bleak to begin with. On the other hand, you know, I think we are living in a different world when it comes to climate consciousness and climate action um, than we were a couple of years ago. The fact that all of these countries made net zero pledges during the pandemic and did it, you know, outside of the realm of pressure in like a Paris style negotiation um, without bullying each other or shaming each other, but just because they thought it was in their self-interest to decarbonize quicker. 
that's really, really different than the place we were in just a few years ago. And, you know, I take all those pledges with a grain of salt, basically none that's ever been made in the past has ever been fulfilled. On the other hand, you know, it is definitionally progress that like many more people are concerned about climate change, maybe particularly many more people in positions of power in the political and corporate worlds are concerned enough about it to at least be paying lip service to it. There's a lot more to do, but, you know, it feels like for the first time the world is beginning to take this whole challenge seriously. And, you know, I think we've wasted so much time. We're not going to avoid what was once called catastrophic warming, but we may manage to keep the level the temperature level to something close to that two degrees Celsius. And, you know, it may, it may mark me as a totally grim apocalyptic alarmist that I think that that's like a good outcome and a happy outcome. But um, I do, I think it's, you know, much better to land at 2.3 degrees than at 3.7 degrees or 4.8 degrees or something. Um, And so it's sort of all stories at once. I was just, um, I was just giving a talk at like a, a book conference this weekend where I was talking about, you know, climate change at three speeds was like the name of my talk. The first speed was climate impacts. The second was the speed of climate action. And then the third was the speed of our disorientation. And I still think we haven't really like started to think about just how profoundly all of these forces are going to shake the way that we think of the, the world and our place in it and our culture. And um, that's all changing really pretty quickly too. Yeah. And I, I have a couple of questions based on that answer. One of them would just be, one of the things I find interesting about the way your book is framed is that um, you're coming at it from a very different perspective than most of the people I read, than Garrison and I are, because we're, we're definitely more on kind of the ecological end of things. Like I uh, appreciate the woods more than I appreciate uh, being around people. And like, that's a big part of like my desire for, for conservation. And you're coming at it more from like a, well, I'm worried that like people aren't going to be able to like handle what's coming and the changes that are coming. And I'm, I'm, I, I think that's much closer to the perspective you have to have to get Americans uh, on board with doing something about it, because clearly the whole um, we're damaging nature um, isn't a big sell, hasn't been a big selling point up to this point. And I'm, I'm wondering how in your, in conversations with people who are maybe kind of like only tangentially paying attention to climate change when there's a disaster, how do you, what, how do you recommend trying to get, trying to get people on board with the severity of the issue and the necessity of action? Well, one thing I, I think is really important as like a starting point is just to understand that like, Basically, nobody on planet Earth is living as though this is the emergency that it is. And that includes me. And it includes probably both of you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It may may be not, maybe doesn't include Greta, but like, you know, the number of people who are truly living like this is the emergency that it is are, you know, you could probably count them on a couple hands. Yeah. And that means that like the differences between those of us who are alarmed about it and those who haven't yet gotten there or haven't yet started freaking out, I think is a lot, that dif- distance is, is smaller than we often really acknowledge. And we, we, we sort of tell ourselves, especially given like the partisan lens of everything that we, um, you know, everything we do in our lives that like people on the other side are just impossibly distant from us. But I think functionally, like the average normie liberal who says climate change is an existential threat, but hasn't done anything about it and hasn't even really changed the way that they vote in response to it is not all that far from the Republican who says, you know, okay, maybe climate change is happening, but whatever, we'll figure it out. I don't need to worry about it. Like in terms of concrete 
behavioral and political action, they're not that different. Um, which means I think that there's a lot of common ground there. And, you know, I think that my own awakening on this may be more instructive than say yours in the sense that, um, as you said, I, you know, I, I think of myself as I'm sometimes joke. I'm like a human chauvinist. Um, you know, like if I could snap my fingers and save all the world's forests and all the world's ecosystems and all the world's fishes, that would be nice. But if I had to trade them for the well-being of all future humans on the planet, I, I would take that trade. Um, and when you just walk through, um, you know, everything that science projects for what life will be like at say two or three degrees Celsius, um, you know, I, I have like a little spiel that I can give about how bad that is. But then even beyond that, I say, you know, these are like tens of thousands of scientific papers. If three quarters of them were totally wrong and the remaining quarter turned out to be overly alarmist, we would still almost certainly be dealing with an unprecedented ecological catastrophe. This is not, we're not asking you to believe every single scientist who's working in every single university. And we're not asking you to believe, you know, the, the guy who is running away from civilization and trying to like build a prepper hut in the wilderness. Um, we're just saying like the number of things that are being disturbed are already being disturbed are well beyond anything that humans have ever experienced in their, you know, depending on how you count hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years on the planet. And our capacity to respond to that is very, very much in question, especially when you look around and see how poorly we are today responding to the challenges right in front of us. So I think that there's like, a, um, you know, there's a, there's a relatively simple way to talk about, you know, not like your life will be threatened directly in talking to somebody, but the climate basis for everything that you know of as normal is already gone. Yeah. And exactly what will endure from the civilization that we have inherited is actually an open question. Now that's not to say that I think humans are going to go extinct or, you know, um, civilization will collapse, but like this does represent an unbelievably dramatic challenge to every aspect of our lives um, and the aspect, every aspect of everybody's life on the planet. And um, we're going to be living around that obstacle and navigating around it um, for the rest of the century, at least. Yeah, I um the term I've been using increasingly that I did not come up with, but that I think adequately describes where we are right now is, is post-normal. Um, and I think a lot of the the challenge when it comes to taking effective action, even just for adaptation, is convincing people um, that we're post-normal. Because as you pointed out, even those of us who um, will write entire books about the severity of the problem have not changed our lives to the extent that we um, that we that we would need to if we were really taking the problem. Like, and and it's it's hard to like. I I don't know how. I think one of the things that frightens me because when I think about the different kinds of responses we could see, and we, we just talked to one of the authors of the book, Climate Leviathan, um, which kind of poses some of the, the yeah. broad category. Good yeah, good book. Yeah. I'm concerned because the, the, pot, the, the responses to climate change that I see as most frightening in that book are all based around promising people one way or the other, we'll get back to normal. We will get you back to 
the things on the shelf that you're used to having and the kind of lives that you're used to having. And I think the actual adaptations that we need to make and the ones that will lead to a world I consider at least more livable are ones that um, are accepting that normality is gone. And I don't know how you, you, you thread that needle and get people to accept the end of normal. I think that's well, the I think, challenge. Yeah, I think the real challenge there is that we are, we are unbelievably good at normalizing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's science, social science suggesting that the basic timeline on which most of us base our, you know, our expectations for the near future is five or 10 years, which means that we're only ever, you know, that's like the baseline we carry into the future, not like the pre-industrial climate, not even the climate of our childhoods, but the climate that we've experienced over the last five or 10 years. And if you think about like what that means in the context of, for instance, like, you know, wildfires in the American West, it means that we've already totally accepted a level of burning in a, in the, in a modern wealthy state, modern wealthy set of states that 50 years ago would have seen, seemed truly, truly apocalyptic. And a lot of these fires today look apocalyptic. We are horrified by them when we see the images on our scrolling on our phones. We watch some of those dash cam videos and they terrify us. And on the other hand, like, you know, there's still 40 million people living in California. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that there's a, there's a little bit of an awakening ongoing at the moment having to do with the air pollution effects from those fires. I think a few years ago, we really thought that the main fear was about having your house burned down or having to outrun your flames or something. And now it's understood much more broadly that there are these real health risks and that those don't, um, they don't stay put. Like, so you can't escape them even if you're, you know, living in a flatland away from, away from the woods or something. Um, and I see the same dynamic in my own life, which is to say, you know, I often find myself these days describing myself as, as much as I hate to talk about climate change in terms of like mood, relatively more optimistic than I was a few years ago. But that's because my baseline of expectation was like, while I was writing this apocalyptic book, I'm, I'm still so much more alarmed than I was 10 years ago. And yet in thinking about my own recent, like what's no, what counts as normal, I'm thinking about like 2016, I'm not thinking about 2010 me. And in that interim, I had this, you know, huge and really grim awakening, which is already now I basically like retired to the, you know, the dustbin of, of memory that I don't, I don't even think about it anymore. And, you know, I often worry about how profound that capacity and how pervasive that reflex is in humanity that we, we already accept a ton of suffering and dying that's totally unnecessary in the world today. And that we will, will respond to new threats to some degree by adapting and protecting ourselves, but also in some significant way by just defining upward what is an acceptable level of, of pain and, and human dying. And um, that could lead to a quite grim future, not just because it involves all that human pain, but also because it means that we're, we're not really to ever going to take control of the problem. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Remember, I said I was optimistic. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate that. I think that one of the things that has to become post-normal is our understanding of what optimistic means. Because, um, yeah. you know, in the communities, I just did a, an AMA on this the the collapse subreddit, which both has a lot of collects a lot of useful information about uh, problems with supply chains and and environmental uh, catastrophe, and also. Pro- provides this pervasive air that like everything's going to fall apart. And I, I think that actually is, I think it's it's based on the kind of narcissism that total collapse narratives always are because we almost never 
see that in history. You see areas collapse, you see countries collapse, um, you see geographic regions experience aspects of collapse, but like more of what you see is things get worse for people, but the broad systems, you know, stay together. Um, and I, well, you know, I, th I think that there, there is a, I, I'm, I have the ba same basic view of the collapse. I uh, read it subreddit as you do, but I would say there are some reasons to think that we may be more vulnerable to that kind of threat, which is to say that we are much more globalized and linked um, civilization. Now our supply chains are stretched very thin. Our food supply is, um, has very little redundancies in it, even in those parts of the world, like where we live, where you and I live, um, where like food is not really a problem. We still um, have incredibly fragile um, supply chains. And in the same way that we didn't see global pandemics until there was some form of globalization um, with the Roman Empire, um, we are now enter, you know, entering into what is likely to be an age of intensifying um, you know, disease spread because of how interlinked we are. It's also the case that our vulnerabilities are shared and that um, other parts of the world are not necessarily, do not necessarily offer you know, the sort of system redundancies um, that they might have in the past. And I think another thing that's overlooked by, to, to go to the other side of the equation, a thing that's overlooked by those who, who think that, civil, that civilizational collapse is, is likely or imminent, is that a lot of the things that we're talking about, um, a lot of the suffering that we're talking about coming as the result of climate change um, is already present in, in many parts of the world, who, which, are, which are full of suffering, yeah. but which are not um, lawless, um, you know, on the brink of um, mass death. Um, in the way that I think a lot of the sort of, you know, Cormac McCarthy imagination um, would suggest. And, you know, one thing that I've been thinking about turning over in my head a lot recently is something that, you know, some people who are, they're not climate deniers, they're sort of, you know, sometimes called like lukewarmers or people who think we can, we can adapt our way through everything. We'll say, well, they, well, they say, um, you know, how bad could it get? You know, it, it could be, uh, it could get as bad as the 20th century. And, you know, the 20th century was really bad. Like there were a lot of famines. There were, <laughs> we had a couple really big wars. Like, you know, um, there, there, were, there were some really big pandemics. Like, um, but we already regard like, you know, the life of the first half of the 20th century as impossibly distant from our own in terms of expectations of wealth and prosperity and security. And one big question is, you know, if we do return to, I mean, it won't be exactly like a rewind to that period of time, but if we return to a world that is as defined by general fragility and instability as that one was, will it feel human and modern or will it feel, um, you know, like the stone ages? Yeah. Um, and I don't totally know the answer to that, but it's certainly the case that someone living in, you know, 1930s London wasn't like, this is the end of the world. Yeah. Um, they thought actually they were at the, you know, the pinnacle of the world. There were some problems, you know, there's some things we need to say, you know, and um, it'll be really interesting to see how all of these dynamics play out going forward. If we start to see, yeah, like a, a return of um, some scale of suffering and disease and death, um, that we, that we, at least in the, in the wealthy West, haven't been comfortable with or familiar with for a few generations, but which really do, you know, they are sort of part of the fundamental human experience, even the modern human experience. Yeah. Um, Garrison? 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we, we talked about, we talked a bit about this yesterday, but it is, I, you, you brought it up again, how almost the, the new normal is going to be radical, un, radical unnormalness. Like, like having like things always be changing. That's going to be like the thing that we're all going to be used to now is switching back and forth between extremes kind of all of the time. Um, yeah. And like, yeah, like I, you're, I mean, I would say like, I, you know, I, I'm sort of with Robert. I feel like, you know, I, I often like as a straw man set up the, phrase the new normal to then say really it's the end of normal and you know yeah. we'll never yeah. never normal again but i also think um you know we've been living in a we've also been living in a civilization that runs on change for a long time especially those of us in you know the u.s and um i you know i, I had a, a bunch of years ago i had a long series of conversations with um william gibson the sci-fi novelist i'd like interviewed him for the, the paris review writers at work series and you know he was just obsessed with the Victorians, because he was like, these were the first, this was the first time that you could really see the world changing in the space of a single generation. And we think of the Victorians as being defined by their propriety, their sexual, um, you know, primness and, you know, overdone morality about almost everything. Um, their refusal to believe that they were anything but, you know, um, incredibly refined, civilized people. But he's like, when you when you really look closely at those novels and read those diaries, there was an enormous amount of just technological anxiety and um, disarray produced simply by the speed of change. And now that has become, he said, you know, that has become the basis of our entire civilization. And such that, like, we expect our phones to get better every three years. You know, we um, we expect novelty in our culture, in our food. We expect, we get bored with old politicians really quickly. We want new faces. Like these are all um, the, the like desperate addiction to the new is one of the really defining features of modern American, modern Western life. And so in a certain way, we're already acclimated to rapid radical change, or at least we're, we've been trained um, to not just survive in that world, but to demand it. It's just a sort of a what we're talking about is a different kind of a change um, that is much less about giving us things we want and much more about imposing, you know, great burdens and suffering on us and demanding that we make changes and adaptations that we, we may not be so happy about. And as I was saying earlier, there are a lot of signs, especially in our politics, that, you know, for all our cultural capacity for change, we may be um, in terms of policy and at the social level, like a little too sclerotic in, in our capacity to, to move. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super-comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. How do you see, at least in like the short term, like the next you know few years, more politicians or tech capitalists, like business people, starting to realize that and is starting to put those changes in, or do you think it's not going to happen yet? Do you think it, it require? Do, do you think it'll require more, more things to happen before they'll like start addressing it more urgently? You know, I guess it, it's it all sort of depends on what you mean by it. You know, like in the reconciliation bill that's currently being um, debated in DC, there is a clean electricity standard um, that, you know, that would be a major, major step forward for American climate policy, really a major, major step forward. It's not even something that we're like talking all that much about, um, but it's, you know, at the moment by far the biggest and most impactful thing that American politics could deliver. And it's on the table. Um, and it would not have been on the table five years ago or probably 10 years ago. Um, there's some people who think we could have done it in the early Obama years, but I'm skeptical of that. 
And, you know, we have all of these world leaders talking about climate like it's a top shelf issue. They're not yet designing their economic policies as though it's like the paramount issue, but it's, you know, if someone's making a, you know, take Barack Obama in 2004, the Democratic National Convention, if someone's making that kind of speech, really hoping to announce themselves on the stage as a major political figure in this country, they could not not talk about climate change in that speech. Like it would have to be part of the way that they talked about the future. And that's really, that's really different from how it was not all that long ago. And that's true really all around the world, you know, all the way from the authoritarian end of the spectrum to um, the liberal democracies of the world. Um, it's even true when you listen to um, leaders of petrostates in the Middle East and sort of quote unquote climate deniers like Scott Morrison. He's not even in Australia. He's not even talking the same way about climate that he talked two or three years ago. Like there, there are all of these really dramatic shifts taking place. You know, we're still like way short of what science says is necessary to avert a catastrophic level of warming. And frankly, I don't think we're going to do that. Um, but we're already starting to see, I think, our politics and our culture turn around climate in a quite profound way. And I think, you know, that's a sign that like, we are living in a climate century. This is the meta narrative of our era. And um, there's sort of no getting around it. Um, you're starting already starting to see more climate stories in, in Hollywood and people talking about climate anxiety with their therapists. And, you know, in addition to the obvious direct extreme weather events and it's just pervasive and um, front of mind in a way that it wasn't before. And I've, I've personally been kind of astonished at that speed of change. Um, Cause when I was, you know, writing my book a few years ago, I, I looked back at, I looked at the environmental movement at the present, say like 2018. And I looked back at a couple generations worth of environmental activism. And I thought, well, oh, these guys are like the same people. They're kind of saying the same things and they've never made any progress at all. Um, and I was, you know, I knew that the path to the theoretical path to progress was political, but I also didn't really see all that much reason for hope on that front. But the last few years have been, you know, this incredible global political awakening where, you know, Greta's the sort of face of it, but she's certainly not all of it. She's, you know, thousands of other incredibly brave and noble climate strikers, um, Sunrise Extinction Rebellion. And then you have like, you know, the head of the Bank of England and, you know, the Secretary of the Treasury talking about climate as like an existential threat. Like this is just, a, it's a really, really different world than we were living in a few years ago. And, you know, as I said, we're not nearly moving as fast as we, as we need to, but at the level of like cultural recognition, uh, personally, I'm actually kind of impressed at how quickly we've moved. Do you think like the so-called like green movement or climate, ju climate justice movement has had that much of an impact in the past few years? Cause I mean, like we are seeing more and more rhetoric from politicians, definitely. But if you look at someone like Justin Trudeau or even what Biden's done the past few, the past few months, you know, cause like, when Biden was campaigning, he talked about banning fracking and all these things that of course he's probably not going to do. Do, do you think like, they've given people in power language that makes them sound like they're doing the right thing. But do you, do you actually see the climate justice movement, like getting people to do actionable things? Or do you think it's going to be more 
I think like there's like a term like um greenwashing, right? Like 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 you say the right thing, but you're not actually doing the thing. I mean, it's not one or the other. I think, you know, I have a very pragmatic approach to it. I think, yeah, there's certainly a lot of empty rhetoric. Um, there's certainly a lot of pledges that are being unfulfilled. Um, but there's also a lot more investment and um, mobilization than would have seemed possible a few years ago. And, you know, from my point of view, I mean, I'm glad that activists may be frustrated with that and may want to push for more. I think they should. But I also personally am going to count that as as progress. So, um, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I um, This is a bit of a side note, but my, my mother was this sort of like radical progressive education innovator. She, she started this public school that I went to um, in East Harlem in the seventies. And it was, you know, it, it just like embraced all of these quite, quite progressive values about, you know, um, educating kids for democracy, but really, um, you know, all this stuff that has since become quite common in the way that teachers and schools operate like project-based learning and, you know, emphasis on individual um, tracks and, um, you know, open classroom and, um, you know, building play into the, you know, the experience of, and when I, and like, now that I'm a person who has kids, my kids aren't quite ready for a proper school, but I have a lot of friends who are, I, you know, I, I hear the way that they talk about their schools and it's like every single school now runs their classrooms this way. And when I talk to my mom about it, she thinks they lost the whole fight. Like she thinks that it's like a total disaster defeat because there, there are some things that they would have wanted to see happen that didn't get happen. I think it's just like, you know, activists are by nature quite demanding and uncompromising and that's good, but it shouldn't blind us to the fact that like, you know, Joe Biden really has a lot of people in the administration who are really serious about climate. Now they're still making compromises with the fossil fuel business. That's not good. They're still worrying about, you know, political realities of, um, what it means in swing states to, you know, to ban fracking. I wish that weren't the case too, but it also is just like dramatically different than as recently as like whatever it was like 2014, 2015, Barack Obama was bragging about expanding, um, oil drilling in the U S like that is just not, okay, maybe Biden's doing a little bit of that, but he's not going to like go on stage and be like, you guys, you got to thank me because I'm drilling more. (laughs) Like, it's just, it's a really different, um, it's a really different kind of reality. And when you get down to the like nuts and bolts of it, especially if all the stuff in the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill go through, we're really talking about an unprecedented level of um, public investment in the decarbonization of the American economy. Um, You know, again, like just to be clear, I don't think it's sufficient. I wish that there were more, but it's not just the same old business. and when you look around the world, I see basically the same pattern that there's a lot of momentum in the right direction. It's not, you know, as fast as I would like, and it's um, compromised with all these other things that are, you know, politicians have to do, but, or think they have to do. But when I was writing my book, it was a completely defensible, which is 2018. It's a completely defensible thing to say. Business as usual scenario was for four and a half degrees of warming this century. And now I think the best analysis suggests that current policies may land us under three degrees. So that's three years and we may have shaved a degree and a half off our base case expectation. That's kind of incredible. I think that there's not all that much more to do that some of those policies and ambitions already sketch out the sort of maximal ambition 
that we can really achieve in the societies that we have, you know, to take the American example in particular, Biden wants to decarbonize the American power sector by 2035. Could we do that by 2030 or 2025? That seems really hard. <laughs> um, you know, when you hear about these companies in these countries that are banning gas powered cars by 2030, um, you're like, could you, could they do that by 2025? Could they really build new factories to supply all the new cars by 2025? That seems really fast. 2030 may be even overly ambitious. So my own perspective on all those pledges is that even more important than getting people to announce more ambitious ones is to just sort of hold them to the promises they've already made, um, even though those promises may not be quite up to, you know, what the science says is, is necessary to give us the future we, we might once have hoped to um, secure. And that wraps up part one of our interview with author and journalist David Wallace-Wells. Um, you can find him on Twitter at D. Wallace-Wells, and you can find his book, I don't know, wherever books are sold. Local bookstore, online, I'm sure I'm sure you can figure it out. Um, so that, that wraps up our show today. Tune in tomorrow to check out the second part of the interview. That's all of today. Safe pods, safe casting. See ya. <laughs>Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at VisitCalifornia.com.